Welcome to the Do Something Beautiful podcast. I am your host, Leah Darrow, and I share with you inspirational people who are truly doing something beautiful to make our world better. This podcast is inspired by the words of St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who said, do something beautiful for God. Do it with your life. Do it every day. Do it in your own way, but do it. Welcome back here. We're in season three, episode two, and I am speaking with Rosario Rodriguez today. Some of you might already be familiar with her. If you're not, this is an intense interview. It's awesome. It's great. But this is just, it's intense. Rosario is a survivor of two violent crimes. She will go into both of those during our conversation. And she has just, because of these, has this amazing story because of how her faith has allowed her to heal from them and move on and process what's happened to her and how she ends up becoming an advocate for others. She's an absolutely fantastically dynamic speaker. She has shared her story with thousands and thousands and thousands of people, including gang members with the LAPD for an Operation Ceasefire and Victim Awareness Program at a high maximum security prison. Whoa, (laughs) this girl really is doing a lot. She's fantastic. She lives in Los Angeles. She's recently married. She's just super passionate about her faith and her family and Latin dancing. And she is just a great, great gal, an amazing opportunity that we have to listen to her and to learn from her and the power of forgiveness. Please enjoy this wonderful interview with Rosario Rodriguez. All right, welcome back. Cannot wait for you to listen to this. This is going to be so fantastic. Once again, as I mentioned, we are talking to the beautiful, the wonderful, the survivor, Rosario Rodriguez. Rosario, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Hey, you know what? Anytime, girlfriend. Anytime. Okay. There's, I mean, we're going to get in some pretty deep stuff and some real stuff. And that's what I love you. You're vulnerable. You're honest. You're real. I just connect with that on a very deep level. But I need to get to something Mm -hmm. extremely important because as people who listen to the Do Something Beautiful podcast, they know that I tend to, I like to talk about a few things with my guest. And I noticed that I don't even have to like even guess because it's on, you've written it in your bio on your website, (laughs) which is rosariorodriguez.org. And it is that you are a Star Wars and Lord of the Rings fan. I am. Yes. Oh my gosh. We were made to be friends. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm not, I don't think I'm a nerd or anything. Oh, Um, then maybe we're not friends because I'm definitely the nerd level. Nerd level I, Star Wars. I don't and have any of the figurines. What? Although, yes. Although I have taken those online tests, and I definitely am Aon. So I don't. I don't know what level that puts me. But um, so it, I no, probably let, let me ask you. That, much, no, yeah. Without taking the test, if okay, if you could be any any character in Lord of the Rings, who would you want to be? Who who do you identify with most? Ao. I definitely Aon. Yeah. Yeah. I guess um, so. I mean, you know. That epic, you know, I am no man. <laughs> no, <laughs> because I totally she's get not, it. And, her, and she's woman and it's her femininity that allows her to finish the job that a man could not do. No, Ooh. hands down. I agree. I want to be here with all of my heart. And I definitely think if I have to be completely honest, that there is a huge part of me that is like that. But there's also something very carnal and basic that makes me realize I am a hobbit. I'm the hobbit. Aww. man. I am Sam. 
I am the cheerleader. Aww. And I'm, I love I'm, Sam. I'm going to be the, the one that's going to be like, you can do it, Rosario. You can, I know you can do it. I'll help mm-hmm. you up the mountain and you can put the ring in. Like that would be me yeah. and you on that thing. Cause I, and I also love to eat like 17 times a day. So, you know, I'm the hobbit. I actually, every day <laughs> as I'm having, cause I don't eat big meals. I eat a lot of small meals throughout the day. And as I'm munching and eating and reheating more food and I just put it in the fridge for leftovers and then I'm taking it out to eat again. I do think, you know, I'm probably a hobbit. Like my eating habits are definitely hobbit yeah, for sure. No, I'm, I'm with you. Speaking of of your faith and how it's gotten you through things, even with your brother, your faith has also gotten you through some pretty intense and I mean, let's just be honest, some pretty terrible moments of your life, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. You yes. have been the survivor of two, two, not one, not none, but two violent crimes. I want, I, we're, we're going to go into both of those. Let's start with the first one because- I, got, I mean, they're they're both just so intense. I mean, so explain. Can you just kind of like take us through like a little bit quickly of like this first violent crime? Because number one, I don't think a lot of people we read a lot about this stuff. We hear about it on the news. We know maybe sometimes like we know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. But like this is you, you mm-hmm. and you, our sister in Christ, went through this and. And I'm just wondering, I know your story. I know I've read and I've seen you speak. And I know about some of these crimes, not in the detail that you're going to share right now, but I can't believe, I just can't believe God's work in your life and just the miracle that you are, that you're even still here. So I guess without Mm -hmm. kind of going into all of my awe about it, now the first violent crime that you ever experienced, you were 14, is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. I was a freshman in high school. Just a baby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, can you tell us what happened with that? Yeah. So I remember I was walking to the school bus and it was several blocks away from my parents' home. And it was a beautiful morning. I actually was giving thanks to God in that moment because you could still see the moon and the bright blue sky. And it was November. It was chilly. And I just remember saying, thank you, God, for this beautiful morning, the trees, the green. I love it. And all of a sudden, this man comes running up behind me and he grabs me and he picks me off. I'm very petite, so it's pretty easy, but he picked me up the ground, had his hand over my mouth, pulled me into an empty wooded lot, threw me on the ground and attempted to rape me. Oh my God. And as soon as he started pulling me into the woods, I went through denial that it was even happening. Like, I remember that moment of being like, this is, and I even said it out loud, even though he had his hand over my mouth, this is not happening. It's not happening. And finally, when I started figuring out in my brain that it really was, I started screaming the Hail Mary at the top of my lungs over and over again. What made you, what made you do that? It was the way I was raised. We would pray Hail Marys all the time for everything. If we got a phone call and someone said, someone is sick, please pray. My parents would stop whatever was going on in the home and we'd get together and we'd sit around and we had an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe that was in our living room. And so we'd sit or kneel before her and we'd pray a Hail Mary. My parents encouraged us that if we heard a siren, ambulance or police to stop and pray a Hail Mary and send our guardian angel that everyone would be safe and okay. So it was really ingrained into each one of us. And it was, some of it was just my natural reaction. You know, anything that happens, boom, you pray a Hail Mary. So it's something that I'm very grateful for that my parents taught us. And 
when I was younger, very younger, I had a nightmare. And I remember my mom came to comfort me and she was, you know, rocking me back and forth in her arms. And I probably was in like second grade at this point. And one of the babies cried because obviously being the oldest of six at that time, she was either pregnant or had a new baby. But um, one of the, the babies cried. And so she had to go see the baby. And I begged her not to leave me. And my mom said, you know, we have our blessed mother in heaven and she can be here with you. And she said, just imagine her holding you in her arms the way I just did, rocking you to sleep and she will rock you back to sleep and she won't let anything happen to you. So I said, okay. So, and I imagined that that night and that really, that stayed with me as well and helps me make that personal connection with our blessed mother. So going to her in those moments leading up to this, it was very natural and, and always, you know, just knowing that she was going to be there and she was going to protect me. And so, so you're screaming the hell Mary out loud. Yes. Yes. And he was on top of me and all of a sudden he looks up above my head and his face looked terrified. He stops, jumps up, turns around and runs away. And I'm just like, you know, I can't even process anything. I'm like, what just happened? And so I stand up and I'm, you know, fixing my clothes and I turn around because I want to see what he saw that was so scary. And I'm expecting, you know, I don't know, a man standing there or something. And I saw nothing. And and I started screaming at the top of my lungs for help. And so the kids at the bus stop that were not even like less than half a block away, they were very, very close. They just couldn't see because of the, the wooded lot. They came running and I told I told the kids what happened. And so one of the kids lived right next to this wooded lot. So he took me to his parents' home. We called the police. I called my dad, um, but I had told them what happened. And so, and that this man just ran off he, and I was like, he, it looked like he saw something scary. And so the dad went to look in the woods. He didn't find anyone. I didn't see anything. The detectives came and we talked and they went to look and searching for him. They, and they didn't find him or saw, they didn't see anything either. And so it wasn't until we went to the police station and I talked to the sketch artist and that's when they confirmed that they knew who this man was. This man was a serial rapist and killer and he'd been going around area high schools. He would stalk a young girl for three months he would attack her, rape her, and kill her. Oh, my God. Yes. And I was the only young woman that he stopped in a task that he didn't rape and kill. Oh, my gosh. What did you do when you heard this news? How did you even process that at, at 14 that there was, I mean, considering his mm -hmm. MO, you would have been you would have been raped and killed that day. I didn't process it. I really didn't. I was, you know, I just couldn't. There was so much of the trauma that consumed me that I, I couldn't even think of it until years later, almost, where it really, it really hit me. I mean, I knew I was grateful to be alive, very grateful, but there was so many, I mean, so I know that they sent a note to all of, parents at the school. They sent it home with all the kids that day, letting them know what happened. Of course, not my name. I, it was on the news and we were watching TV and 
I think we were flipping channels and we saw on the news, my mom quickly changed the channel. I, cause I start freaking out. Of course they didn't tell my name. I was so young, but I just had that shame of everyone knows. And I felt so embarrassed and so shameful. Like I did something wrong. And there's no way to explain that because I know it's easy to be on the outside and think, of course, it's not your fault. You never did anything wrong. You were just walking to school. Right. But for some reason, I don't know what happens, but when women are victimized and even men, when men are victimized, but when women are victimized for some reason, one of the first things that trigger is shame and it, and this idea that it was their fault. Mm. Like they take on this guilt. Right. And it's something that I've experienced talking to women all over the United States and after sharing my story. And it just like, that's one of the things that breaks my heart the most is that we take this on no matter what age we are, whether we're two years old to 50 years old to even eight years old. Like whenever a woman's victimized, she always puts that guilt and that shame on herself. Rosario, why do you, why do you think we do that? You know, I don't know. I don't know. That's something I, 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 yeah, I don't have that answer, but it makes me sad. And I just, my goal is to heal women from that Mm -hmm. because it took me a long time to heal from that. And I didn't go to school for a whole week, I think maybe longer until, and my parents said like, when you're ready, they did have to push me a little bit. Of course, because I was terrified to leave the house. I was so scared. They never found the guy either. So to this um, day, to this day, yes, he's never been found. Oh my God. And so, yeah, that's, that creates such a fear. I can't even describe, but it becomes, it really handicaps me significantly in being an independent young woman. Do you think that that fear still affects you today? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. I, I mean, and then especially being victimized again later, but even before then I would still jump at any noise. I have a hard time walking down the street. And when someone comes running, even just a jogger, I start internally freaking out. Mm. And sometimes there were times I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's him. He's found me. So, but, but I do live with some of a little, a bit of peace knowing I truly believe without a doubt that that man saw something divine. I don't know who it was, but I don't know if it was my guardian angel or our blessed mother or St. Michael, the archangel, or maybe it was even all three. I don't know, but I truly believe that he did see something that caused him to stop and run away because especially talking to the police, they were shocked. They were baffled. Why would he he do this? No one heard us. There was no one around to scare him off or spook him. So they were just like, that's weird behavior. And there was, for the most part, most of his victims, there weren't, there weren't anyone, like no one noticed except for one other case. Well, I don't even say one other, but one case but he didn't even see much like this man was very good at hiding. Mm. Um, so, you know, police were like, well, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. That's not right. his typical behavior. So I really, I do believe that it was divine intervention that saved my life Amen. and rescued me. Amen. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. You have friends here. No, absolutely. That's, I, that's, that's the work of God in your life. That's the work of God answering that prayer of you. I mean, I just can't even, I can't even just imagine at 14 Mm -hmm. 
having that experience and but also having having 14 and praise God for your family and the example of just just prayer, basic prayer um, mm-hmm. that taught you and put the habit of prayer into your life, which is so important because, you know, that's thank God that that was there because that allowed you to pray. And, you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. this is just one silly person's opinion, but, you know, that prayer was answered. And however God manifested one of his messengers or himself, however, to do something mm-hmm. to to scare that guy away, there was some type of miracle that happened. And and regardless if we don't know all the details of how, how God chose to do all that, but mm-hmm. it's just that beauty that your family taught you, I think, though, in that habit of prayer. And that's just yeah. so important that we as families, like that we parents are doing mm-hmm. that that we we do that with our spouses every night that we have that time where we are consistently praying with one another, um, mm-hmm. encouraging one another, especially as parents with like small kids or even mm-hmm. big kids. Um, and my, you know, my family did the same thing, Rosario. We, we said the rosary every single night. My mom and dad also did the same thing. If we heard sirens, anything, say a Hail Mary for whoever is in need right now. Um, mm-hmm. and we would always do that. And I also really love like the fact, and maybe you you experienced this too, but my family they realize that prayer with God is not just a, just it's not just a personal relationship. It is this mm-hmm. connection and communion with our neighbor, with yes. all people mm-hmm. around us, so that we're praying for other people and not just mm-hmm. our own needs. And I think mm-hmm. that's a beautiful thing of prayer. It sounds like your family was also doing, yeah. Um, and praise God that they gave you that type of a habit to where. Worst case scenario of your entire life at 14, the first thing that you did is pray. I mean, praise yeah, be to God. I'm, praise be to God for I'm that. so grateful. Even though, I mean, that habit got me in trouble in elementary school with the teacher. But How you did know, you get in trouble for, for praying? Well, because my elementary school was located across the street from a hospital. And so there were many ambulances coming and going (laughs) and I would stop to pray a Hail Mary. And finally the teacher was like, what are you doing? You can't keep stopping and praying in class all the time. You know, he was like, you, you have, he's like, and I explained to him what I was doing. You got in trouble for praying. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, I wasn't the greatest student either. I would rather be reading on my own. So I think he kind of thought I was using it as an excuse to get out of class or out of that study in that moment. And I really genuinely wasn't. I, I really, cause you know, I, I heard an ambulance. I'm going to pray for that person. And, but yes, it was just, there are too many ambulances <laughs> at the hospital. <laughs> so I did get in trouble for it, but I look back on that, like what a gift, what a beautiful grace. And why aren't more kids getting in trouble from their teachers for praying? You know, right? that's, that's like, we wish, you know, in terms of we yeah. like culture, we wish we had those problems today in terms of d- discipline with our kids in school or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I'd be so happy if I had to tell Agnes, stop praying because you're praying you're too right, much, yeah. you know, that'd be fantastic. So, I mean, did this experience, I mean, I kind of just... I want to ask you a couple of questions about this. Mm-hmm. And and once again, I love the fact that you're so honest. And so I don't have to like sugarcoat crap with you. Okay. Did this experience affect like your own sense of identity or sexuality? Did you have, ex- have, have, have like concerns or problems with being with men, with like dating men later or being close mm-hmm. or just holding hands? I don't know. And did some of those things yeah, that happen? I mean, absolutely. But I was kind of saved by some of that due to my strict, mean parents, <laughs> you know, because I was not allowed to date in junior high. I was not. We called it junior high then. I'm showing my age a little. Um, now they call it middle school. I always forget. I wasn't allowed to date in junior high or high school. 
If my dad had it my way, I wouldn't have dated till I was 30. He said that. <laughs> my dad time. did too. Another <laughs> yes. commonality. Yes. Yes. So, you know, some of that was, I mean, I, and I, of course, I resented my parents for that at the time. Looking back, I'm grateful. Although out of our, like the kids, I was the one who broke that rule. And it, but, you know, some of it was in defiance. But I definitely, I didn't trust men even if I wanted to like them. And I was able to get to know some good guys through youth group and high school youth group. And I knew, I knew, you know, my uncles, my dad, my brothers, my, my cousins, I knew that they were good men, but overall I hated men. And I just felt, I went to a public school for high school and you know, the guys there were so crude. They would just say the most ridiculous things. Guys I never met before walking down the hall, come up to me and just say like the most ridiculous, crudest things. And it just promoted that narrative in my mind that men are pigs. They all have the the potential to victimize women. They all like, I couldn't help but look at every man as a perpetrator. It was a huge struggle for me yeah. in that sense. And, I can and only of course, imagine. yeah, of course, carrying around too. I mean, I refused to forgive this man for what he did to me. I was so angry and I became very bitter that I carried that with me. And of course, I, I pushed that on, not just to, I mean, I pushed it on to everyone around me, but definitely to the men in my life. And especially men I didn't know. These guys in high school, I really, if I could, I would let them have it. Not in words so much sometimes, but just sometimes I was a big B to them because I was hurting so much. It was the only way I could function and feel like I was protecting myself. And so I really, I lacked a lot of respect for men. And I am grateful that I, I did have a good father, not perfect, but a good father, a good brothers, good cousins in my life to show me otherwise. But it really was hard to come out of that circle and trust men. And it wasn't until... I think it was a year after high school that, so I mean, through all high school, it became a disaster. I mean, I couldn't sleep at night because I had nightmares and struggling with post-traumatic stress dis- disorder. I was anxious. I didn't eat well. I was just a mess and I became extremely depressed to the point where I had suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I, I really believed in my heart that I felt damaged and I really, and you know, I, it was the worst thing to, for me to sit in youth group and hear people say, God doesn't make junk. And I just wanted to stand up. Anytime a speaker said that, I want to stand up and yell at them and say, liar, liar. Cause here I am. Cause I felt like junk. It's amazing to me. Let me I just, that, mm-hmm. Like, I thought you were going to say right then to like some speaker who said, God doesn't make junk, liar, because I know somebody who did something to me and I think he's junk. But instead, you thought you were junk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I don't know what it is. I don't know. Like we said earlier, I mean, I don't know why, but I've seen that with victims everywhere where we take on the shame, we take on the sins of the person who hurt us, you know, we take on that guilt. And I'm, and maybe it's a, a reaction to, especially in most cases when these people aren't repentive, 
Right. And so it's our way. Like we feel like we have to do it. I don't know. It's crazy. But yeah, I mean, I felt like I was messed up. I had the baggage and it got so bad. I really, and the suicidal thoughts got so bad. It was a year after high school. I really thought I was going to hurt myself. And I knew that that was wrong. And so I went to my mom and I told her, and I said, like, I'm having these suicidal thoughts. I'm so scared. Like it's getting real. I, I can't, I don't trust myself. And she said, let's go talk to our parish priest. And so we talked to him and he knew some of what had happened, but you know, I went into detail and he said, after I was done talking, he said, I want you to do three things. And he said, the first thing is you need to forgive this man for what he did to you. Mm. And I was like, nope, <laughs> no way. I can't do it. You know, and I said, he doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And he said, no, you're right. He doesn't. He, he doesn't deserve your forgiveness, but no one for, deserves any forgiveness. He said, it's a gift that God's given us. And it's a gift that he's given us for ourselves. And it is a gift that we are called to give to other people. And he's like, it says they're right in the hour, Father. That's what you've been praying. Every time you pray rosary, every time you go to mass, it's right there. And right. I'm grateful because he took time to explain to me a lot of things about forgiveness because I realized that one of the things holding me back to forgive him was because I had so many misconceptions on what forgiveness is. And I hear those misconceptions everywhere I go. One of the biggest ones is this idea of if I forgive him for what he did to me, that condones his behavior, right. it condones what he did. And right. it doesn't at all. That's not at all forgiveness. I think one of the misconceptions I had as well that I see a lot of people having too is this idea that first of all, if you forgive someone, you have to say it to their face. That's not true. Right. Also, you have to then reach out as a Christian. You have to like reach out. You have to build some kind of bridge. You have to kind of, you know, create some kind of friendship or relationship. No, not at all. Especially if there's been abuse, especially Violence, if you've realized yeah. that, yeah, that person has been manipulative just because he might promise and say, and you say, I, you forgive him just because he promises that does not guarantee. I do believe people can change, but you know, something that my dad always says is that, God gave us brains and he wants us to use them Yep. and not to get sentimental over, especially if someone's hurt you, if someone has hit you, if there's any violence, you know, it's going to take that person really has to prove themselves that they're not going to do it again. And like I said, I do believe people can change, but you need to protect yourself and God wants you to protect yourself so you can forgive that person. But that doesn't mean that you need to have a relationship with that person. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a very big misconception a lot of times with mm -hmm. forgiveness that, that you're right. That one, forgiveness means an allowance. Like I will allow that bad behavior then to have happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's fine. And it doesn't. It doesn't condone it at all because that's what it is. Mercy is just that. It's mercy. You're right. We don't deserve it. We don't, we don't deserve it from Christ, but Christ came down and gave us himself for us. Right. So we can be unified mm -hmm. back to the f Father. And the same thing, Christ gives us mercy, and then he's asking us to give that same back. And our father, as that priest had mentioned to you, I've had a priest tell me the same thing too, that it's a very condemning prayer. Because when you pray yeah. on the Our Father, you are praying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So Jesus, forgive me of my sins the same way I forgive people who sin against me. So yeah. if we're holding back, <laughs> if we're holding back, it's like, Jesus, I only want you to forgive me this much because that's all the mercy that I'm giving these people. 
Well, mm-hmm. you're, then we actually are limiting the mercy Christ could fully bestow upon us um, mm-hmm. because we're just not, we're, we're not willing to give all that he wants to give into us, out through us to others. So yeah, I mean, just the fact that, that mercy is mercy, that mm-hmm. it doesn't condone bad behavior. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to be called chummy, chummy, chummy with every single right. person who's hurt you, especially as you just said, when there are crimes of violence that people can experience. No, you mm-hmm. shouldn't be going back to your attacker. Shouldn't be going back to your abuser saying, let's just try again. <laughs> yeah. And even verbal abuse, you know, absolutely, it, it doesn't have to be physical. If it's verbal abuse, you know, forgive, move on, but cut all ties. There's no space. There's no room in your life for anyone who's going to be manipulative. Right. And never. You know the devil uses, the devil uses so even in this area mm-hmm. of mercy to get at people all the time. Yes. I see this in people after my talks of people who are in abusive relationships, verbally abusive, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them. And they just, they're like, well, because I don't have an actual bruise, it's not that bad. And um, I'll just give them another chance and everything will be okay. And you're just like, this is manipulating and controlling your life and your peace. Yeah. And it's affecting your own relationships. And you're not able to live out that life Christ wants you to live because you kind of underneath the thumb of that person and mm-hmm. letting them go and kind of cutting those ties, offering the mercy to them. And then letting it go is such a freeing experience if people can, can be brave enough to trust Christ in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And I think, I know it can be scary. It can be terrifying, but there's so much freedom and healing that's available. And I mean, I've dealt with this with even an ex-boyfriend who, I mean, on most skills, he wasn't a bad guy, but he was, he is manipulative. And a lot of people don't know that. And he's known as a very good Catholic man. I don't talk about it. And, and thankfully he doesn't date much. So that kind of like, that puts my heart at ease, you know? But, um, you know, people don't understand why I will not be friends with this ex. And this ex has even like been manipulative about me still being his friend, even after we broke up. And he broke up with me, which is kind of the crazy thing where he's told me straight out verbally and in emails, you're not a good Catholic because you won't forgive me and you won't be my friend. And I think, oh my gosh. I mean, and first of all, you know what? I'm a believer. I really am. Um, and some people say this isn't very Christian to me, but I disagree. I am a believer that, you know what, even if you had a good relationship with a guy and you're, but you discern that you're not called to marriage, it is not healthy to remain in relationship. And I mean, and by relationship, I mean friendship with that guy, especially if you know that you're called to marriage and you're going to marry someone else, whether you know that person or not in that moment. Yeah. Because I'm with you. Ex- yeah. Like it gets, when you have that emotional bond with someone, even if you discern for a little while, there's still that emotional bond. Whether you have engaged in sexual activity or not, especially if you've engaged in sexual activity, but even if you haven't and you're living out a chaste life and it, you know, your dating relationship was very holy, you pray the rosary together, even then, when you create that bond, I do think it's important to have that space, that emotional space especially when you know you're going to go off and marry someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's become a struggle for me. And I've even had friends. I've lost many friendships because of this man who has put so much pressure and who, I mean, and I don't know, I apparently he's talked a lot about me and I don't know what he's saying about me, which is heartbreaking. But at the same time, I think, you know what? I miss those friendships. 
But what's more important is that I am in a healthy place and I have to protect myself. I have to protect my heart. I have to protect my husband. And this guy and I had a very emotional connection. It's such a good example. I mean, what you're just saying right here of of showing the difficulty in, you know, cutting mm-hmm. ties, offering him forgiveness. Um, yeah. And then moving on. And yeah, sometimes it's not going to be smooth sailing as what you're just experiencing right yeah. now mm-hmm. and what you still are experiencing. Because yeah, years we, later, live in the real, yeah. we live in the real world, man. This is mm-hmm. this stuff really happens. But you're all the better for it. Praise God. Absolutely. I mean, this guy could still be spouting his mouth off and do whatever he wants to do. And clearly that's just a sign of wounds in him and a sign. And of that's like, something I realized. Yeah. I absolutely realized like this man is very broken and he has a lot of emotional issues. And so I pray for him, but you know, I can't have any contact. And, and he's still like, to this day, he knows I'm married. He's invited my husband and I to events. I ended up blocking him. I had told him before I didn't want that. I blocked him from my phone. I had to block him on my email because he was reaching out, you know, saying, will you pray for someone? And even using it as a group text. And I mean, he's followed me on Twitter under a pseudonym. So I mean, <laughs> so it's a little he, stalking. <laughs> right, exactly. So when he, so when, you know, you look at some things on the surface, it might not seem manipulative, but because of past behavior, it feels manipulative to me. And I think, look, like I know, here's the thing. I am already aware of a situation, but I don't need you texting me about this, even in a group text. Like I'm having to force all ties. And thankfully, my husband is very understanding and knows like, look, I don't want this man in our lives. And of course, and he agrees. He, my husband has never contacted any ex, <laughs> even those, you know, who like they ended well, like it's not. I think right, because what's that, the point after, after you get married? Like you don't need any more friends. You don't need your ex-girlfriends exactly. or the girls nope. you used to date. I did the same thing. And Ricky, my husband, he agrees. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm sorry. You had those, all these girlfriends and when you were single, mm-hmm. but yeah. now, now look, I'm your best friend and, I, exactly. <laughs> and I'm your wife. So like, it's over. And he, I didn't have to like, you know, twist his arm. And he's like, right. I completely yeah. agree. Like that's the most honorable thing that he can do. Not the most, but one of the most honorable things that he can yeah, do absolutely. is to help, you know, solidify just the trust in our relationship that there's, there's nothing else out there. Um, mm-hmm. And like, like you said, kind of like just going back to what we were talking about, like it just helps and ends up with, you know, putting more trust into that relationship and, and Absolutely. kind of going back to what you were saying of you having to forgive your attacker when you were 14 yeah. and being forced to do that allowed you a place to where because of that, you're able to at least move on with your life and hopefully move mm-hmm. out of that place and get some help and healing, especially in the depression and the suicidal thoughts that you were yeah. going through. I mean, that's some very real stuff. I myself struggled with both of those as well. I've written a blog on it on my website of my experience in in, in suicidal thoughts. And uh, it's, it's a very dark, dark place to be. It's okay to not be okay. Yes. But you just need to get help, you know? Absolutely. And that's the one thing I am grateful for. And I really, truly believe that it was the Holy Spirit leading me to seek out my mom who said, let's talk to our priest. And um, one of the the hardest things, I'm sure I'm not the only one, I can't be, but the priest gave me a lot of great advice, first of all, that I want to touch on really quick before I share the rest of of my story. But one of the things, when he said, you have to forgive him after explaining to me what forgiveness is, he said, you know, when you wake up every single morning, I want you to say the words out loud. I forgive this man for what he did to me. 
He said, you probably won't feel like it. And you may not even believe those words coming out of your mouth, but that's okay. Say them anyway. And then he said, I want you to get professional help. And he set me up with a doctor from the church, our parish. And then um, he also told me he wanted me to pray for him every day. And I was like, okay, you're crazy. I can't. I'll do everything else. I can't do that. Um, To pray for the priest or pray for your attacker? Pray for my attacker. Oh, And he said, you know, praying for someone like this does not, again, it does not, it does not give them power over you. It does not say that their actions are okay at all. But he said, this man does need God in his life and he needs to repent from this. This is terrible. And so he said, even if it's as simple as God bless that man, he's like, that's it. You can keep it as short as you want. You don't even have to pray a whole Hail Mary. You know, he's like, but if you want to pray a Hail Mary, if you want to. But if you if you want to say more, go ahead. But for the time being, if you want to just keep it short, go ahead. And he said, do these things every single day. And so I started implementing them every single day. And my journey of healing was not overnight. It wasn't it wasn't what I wanted it to be. So even throughout this whole time in high school, I was going to adoration with my youth group. We would have an adoration hour before the Blessed Sacrament. I would go to mass, I would pray rosaries, I would pray novenas, divine mercy chaplets, like everything I could do, begging God to heal me from the pain that I was experiencing. Right. And what I wanted was I wanted to walk into adoration. I wanted to pray before the blessed sacrament, say, God heal me. I wanted a lightning bolt to strike me or something, or maybe not a lightning bolt, but you know, it was like some- Some type um, of instant moment of healing and have it just be finished. Yes. And walk out and just be radiant with, you know, the miracle that just happened. And of course that never happened. I know it does happen. It is possible, but I would say probably 98% of the time it doesn't work that way. It is a journey. And of course it's because God understands that the journey of healing is just as important as getting to that healing point. Well, it gets you um, to there, right? I mean, yes, exactly. you need the journey to be healed. And for me personally, I just have like, my first thought is I just immediately think of having a baby and mm-hmm. the journey of nine months, the journey of every stage. And some parts you're just like, and it's not, it's not at all close to what you're experiencing, but in terms mm-hmm. of a time frame where something is, you're wanting something to happen and you know that it will happen. You just maybe don't know exactly when and on what day and what hour and that you'll have that moment of the end goal. But there's times where you want it to speed up and you're just like wanting to get through it. Yeah, it's annoying mm-hmm. and it's frustrating, whatever that might be, but it's in that journey. And it sounds like you already know, I think God just, God just loves the process of our life. He does. Mm-hmm. He loves the process. He loves working in the process. And he's not an instant gratification God because nope. he knows that that is too fleeting. And what he wants to give us is lasting. Yes. And he, it's so worth it. I mean, there are times even, you know, I mean, the dark times of the journey are hard, obviously. But there are times when there's light and you can look behind you and you can say like, oh, I get it. Okay. And sometimes you don't get it, though. And that's okay. But I just say like, allow the journey to happen, allow to be patient. And one of the most powerful things. So during this time throughout high school, and it was, I think my senior year, maybe right after I remember complaining to a friend of mine about this and just saying, why won't God heal me already? Like I do all these prayers. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can. And she said, 
when I was done venting for a very long time, she said, you know, I believe that God will heal you. I believe that God has the power to move mountains. But she said, most of the time, God chooses to move that mountain one pebble at a time. So she said, keep like every time you pray a rosary, that's another pebble. Every time you're praying for healing at mass, that's another pebble. Every time you go to adoration, that's another pebble. For me, going to therapy was like a huge boulder. It was hard. It was emotionally exhausting. Yes. It was painful. Yeah, but there. there was so much grace. And I wouldn't feel it maybe afterwards. I wouldn't feel it maybe the next day, but it was it was this gradual release. And so I think of like they were huge, heavy boulders, hard to move to that mountain, but I did it. And um and God helped me. And so I really see that. And I think that's such a great analogy for whatever healing we're going through. And maybe it's not even something huge and dramatic like mine, but whatever it is that someone's struggling with, God will move your mountain of healing, but keep doing those little things to move those rocks and those right. little pebbles. It's a process. All of life yeah. is a process, regardless if you have a process and a journey of healing. If you go into mm -hmm. the process and the journey of finding the person you're supposed to be with and dating, because mm -hmm. um, I hear that a lot of just like, when, 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 and I'm yeah. like, you know, I think, well, I don't, well, we should just save that for another podcast. I think I'll just stop <laughs> yeah. there because I could talk way too much. But the point is, is that God loves the process. And I think that's what you're saying, mm -hmm. Rosario, is that, and he, he will, and he is working <laughs> in it, Absolutely. in the process. It's not like God's sitting back being like, I'm sorry, you haven't had enough therapy sessions for me to do anything yet. He's, he's in your therapy sessions. He's, he's in those moments of prayer. He's in those rosaries, those adorations. He's in that. He's, Obviously, in the scripture, he's talking to you there in his very words. He's already working in the process. It's just a slow going, painstaking mm -hmm. process at times. Yeah. So and I get to the, mm -hmm. I'm getting the feeling that at some point you got to the place where you were able to forgive this attacker. I did. Yes. And so, and it was one of those things where it was gradual. So, you know, there's no way I can pinpoint it, but I do remember a point where I, I feel like I kind of turned around. And I saw, wow, I have peace in my life and in my heart again. I have joy. I feel like my personality has kind of come back to who I really am. And it was a beautiful moment. And I really felt kind of like that movie. I say that movie. <laughs> the movie, The Wizard of Oz, where, you know, it starts out in black and white. Yeah. And and then when they get to the Emerald City, it's color and there's rejoicing and they're singing and it's so exciting and everything looks vibrant and beautiful. And I realized that that was like my life, my life before I could forgive. And when I had this bitterness and this pain that I was carrying with me was I was living my life in black and white. But once I experienced forgiveness, once I was able to let that go and truly open my heart to that healing process, that's when color came back into my life again. I like and, that. That's me. Yeah. I, I, I love that analogy. So I'm just, I mean, I hate to be Debbie Downer over here. Um, mm -hmm. And I hear this beautiful setup of like, okay, you came to this place, you have forgiveness, you had peace. You were moving on in your life and getting to a place mm -hmm. where you were kind of starting to to kind of figure out where, where God's calling you, what you're, he's doing in your life, yada, yada. 
and then you are you have you're you're the victim again again yeah. mm-hmm. of a completely yeah. unrelated violent Correct. crime. So how old were you when the second one happened? I was 30 years old. My gosh. So from 14 and then 30, mm-hmm. and you've been yeah. living in this place of like peace and forgiveness. It's, I'm sure still working every day. And, and of course, yeah, on all of that stuff, right? Because we're all works mm-hmm. in progress. No yeah. Matter how, what? So, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, so just take us through the second moment, because I have so many questions already about like what yeah. happened. But I guess you should just share quickly here before we run out yeah. of time. Like what happened? So, I mean, I I was living in Los Angeles and I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, like I, I felt like I made it. I'm this independent woman. And I was headed to a friend's house one evening, 11 o'clock at night. No thoughts because it was a very busy street. Lots of restaurants, people lined out up outside. And all of a sudden, as I'm walking, this young woman comes running and she almost passed me. And my first thought is, oh, no, something's wrong. And so I, I start to say, do you need help? And I feel my body being whirled around and I stop. And when we stop, I'm standing and I'm face to face with this young woman. In one of her hands, she has one of my purse straps. The other purse strap was caught on my arm. And in her other hand is a gun. She She's looking at me and she says, give me your purse or I'll shoot. And I look her right in the eye, pleading with her. And I say, please don't shoot. I'm a missionary. I have no money. She yanked my purse off my shoulder. And then she pulled the trigger of the gun and she shot me in my chest. Oh my gosh. I was at an angle. And so the bullet entered the left side of my chest and it crossed it. And as it crossed my chest, it missed my aorta by one centimeter. The fragments hit both my lungs and they collapsed and it tore my esophagus and then lodged itself up in my right clavicle. The head surgeon on call that night told my parents later that I should have dropped at the moment the bullet hit me. He said, we don't know why she's alive. Not only did I not drop dead, obviously, I didn't even fall at all. What? Yeah, I stayed standing. I don't know why. (laughs) And obviously, like the grace of God, I stayed standing and I didn't even feel the bullet go in. And in fact, I was shocked. And so I put my hand to my chest in shock. Then I felt something wet. And so I took my hand off and I looked down and my hand has blood on it. And that's when I realized that I really had been shot. Oh and my God. yeah, she jumps into a waiting car and they start driving down the street. My first thought is to call someone for help. And so I, I start w- going to wave down a car and then I stop and I go, oh, wait, no, I should get the license plate number of the car that they're driving. So I turn around and I start running down the middle of the street, chasing after the car. And you've been shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how can you even how can you even do that? I don't know. I think some of it's like grace and some of it's because I'm a little crazy. That's the only explanation I have for that. This is insane. Um, Okay, keep going. So I start praying and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, how am I supposed to catch up to a car at a time like this? And all of a sudden the car stalls and I go, thank you, Jesus. And then I start praying again. And I'm like, Lord, how am I supposed to remember a license plate number? I've just been shot. You know, like he didn't know. And I get close enough to see the car and the license plate. And it was a word and the word was shield. And I said, thank you, Jesus. Yes. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. I can remember that. So then I turn around and I run back to the intersection where I was. And when I get there, there's a car sitting there on this busy street with her window rolled down. And so I yell at her and I said, I've just been shot. Call 911. And she said, I already have. Which way did they go? And I said, that way. And she took off after the car. 
And then I started to fall and I started gasping for air. I couldn't breathe. And these guys came running from all over. Some of them were waiters. Some of them were valet guys that I just said hi to. Some of them, like they were all people who worked at local restaurants and then a hotel across the street. And some of them sat me down. Some of them took off on foot to try to chase them. They'd all called 911. So then the police came and then the ambulance and they took me to Cedar sinai They put two tubes in my right lung, one in my left. And I was very aware of the pain as they were cutting me. And then they had to take x-rays. So they had me drink barium, which is that thick, chalky, gross substance. And Mm. I drank it. And that's when I experienced that my esophagus was torn because it leaked into my body. Yeah, it felt as though someone poured acid all over my insides. And Mm. I screamed out in pain. And I grabbed the doctor who was standing right by me. And I grabbed him by his shirt and tie begging him to make the pain stop. And of course, there was nothing he could do. And he just shook his head with tears in his eyes because he didn't know what was going on, but could see the pain. Well, because I grabbed the doctor, they didn't get the x-ray they needed. So I had to drink the barium again. Mm. And it was just as painful the second time. They finally get the x-ray. They rush me into surgery. And I'm in surgery for a little over eight hours. They cut through my side, cut through my muscle, took some of the muscle out from my side and used it as a patch for my esophagus. This procedure is very rare. And they said, you know, it just so happened that the head, the surgeon on call, the head surgeon on call that night was actually familiar with this procedure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 90% of the people who have this procedure end up having complications and leakage and they end up either on a feeding tube for the rest of their life or they don't make it. So I am in so a 10%. So odds are really bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Golly. So... You know, it was just like miracle after miracle to keep me alive. And what I really, really believe that it was a couple things. One, I was wearing a medallion of Our Lady of Guadalupe that night that I was shot. And it actually showed up in the x-ray where you can see the outline of her. But if you see the metal itself, like there's no way (laughs) that that would happen because she wasn't like it's a it's just a plastic image of her taped onto a big metal. Right. So it's not like a metal yeah. sculpted exactly. picture yes. of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Okay. Yes. Wow. And so obviously it wasn't the metal, but it was what, you know, that image represents. And I do believe that our mother, again, was right there protecting me. And of course, for me, that confirmation that the license plate was shield, you know, I think of shield as Our Lady's mantle. But I also think of the Bible verse that says, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. Mm. Amen. Yeah. So I really believe that it was no coincidence. And of course, so many people are always like, What crazy idiot would do this while driving a car <laughs> with a, you know, a vanity license plate? Well, it was a stolen car, which I right. found out later. Right. So, and then I was on my way to a friend's house and I had texted him when I left. I was only a few blocks away. So when I don't arrive and he hears sirens, he ran outside his apartment and he told the police, my friend is on her way. You know, she's just dropping something off, but she's not here yet. She should have been. And they said, go inside. 
a young woman's been shot. And he goes, I, that woman might be, that young woman might be my friend. She's not answering any of my texts and calls. And that's not like her. And she had just texted me and they said, well, we can't confirm anything. Go, you can try the hospital. So he runs back into his apartment, starts calling people, texting, emailing, posting on Facebook, please pray. A young woman's been shot. I think it's my friend. I'm headed to the hospital. I'll let you know more. And so immediately that man is asking everyone to start praying for me. So people are praying all over the world immediately for me. Power and this prayer. is, yeah. And this is probably like, so he gets to the hospital and I wasn't in surgery yet. And they wouldn't confirm who I was with him until I was already in surgery. Once they realized he wasn't coming to finish the job or he wasn't, right. you know, we weren't gang members or anything like that. And so they did confirm. And as soon as they confirmed, he again, texted, called, posted all over social media and let everyone know that, yes, in fact, I had been shot and to please pray. And so he started texting friends around Los Angeles. Many of them came. I was in Cedar sinai Many came to the hospital and prayed in the waiting room. Many people prayed rosaries and chaplets over and over again. And what's beautiful is I have heard, obviously, because I don't know this myself, but I have heard that they were a real gift to many people at the hospital that day and and that night and that many people were moved that they came to pray for someone and would even ask them if they would pray for their loved ones and people wow. saying, I haven't prayed in years. Will you pray with me? And so all my friends were able to be a blessing for those people and be an example and that witness of Christ's love and mercy while they were praying for me in the hospital. Praise be to God. Mm -hmm. That is what a beautiful witness. And once again, of prayer. I mean, in the first crime, he, that mm -hmm. you, you survived. I mean, the habit of prayer that your parents taught you was something that, that you, you know, as you were being attacked, you were yelling out of Hail Mary. And then now in the second one, the power of prayer within your friends and all around the mm -hmm. world and how that influences not just you, but other people witnessing them praying for you was mm -hmm. a testimony of Christ to them and, and brought them to a place where they were asking for prayers or praying alongside of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people received a lot of emails. I, you know, I guess I had friends who were emailing relatives and friends saying, you know, this young woman's been shot, please pray for her. And some people were responding some saying like, I've never, I haven't been to church in years and I haven't prayed, but I'm going to pray for her. And so I had strangers following on my hospital blog, that hospital care page for many months, you know, and saying, you know, this is amazing. Your recovery is miraculous. And you've inspired me to go back to church. You've inspired me to pray again. And I just think, my goodness, like if that's all that the good that has come out of what's happened to me, then it was worth it. And it was I worth being shot. Yeah. And I don't say that lightly. I really like, Golly. I don't like, it's easy to say that and like, <laughs> let it roll off my tongue. But I don't say that lightly because I've lived the extreme physical and emotional pain. Right. My recovery has been amazing, but it has definitely not been painless. And it is, it will be eight years, June 29th. This June 29th will be the eighth year that I was shot. June and 29th. Yeah. That's and my wedding anniversary. Oh, no way. <laughs> I'm sure you also know this, but it's also the feast day of Saints Peter and Paul. I do know. Yes. Yeah. Many people have pointed that out. And yeah. um, yeah, so it's been very painful. It's been a hard, long journey. I mean, to this day, I wake up and I still have incision pain. 
My lungs are get weak very, very easily. I have to maintain a certain cardio to keep them up and I don't. So I can climb one flight of stairs and I'm like puffing and I'm huffing and puffing more than my 96 year old or no, 97. He just had a birthday. My 97 year old grandfather. It's embarrassing. It's there are times I feel like I feel my body feels like an old person. It, it creaks, it hurts, it moans. Yeah. And there are t- it's easy for me to get frustrated and jealous and impatient with my body, with healing and, you know, setbacks. And it's easy to get caught up in that and to be and to complain. And But in the end, even when I do complain, thank God for the gift of confession, first of all, because I have found so much healing in that sacrament. I know, like you shared earlier, you know, you, your family, you guys would go to confession regularly. We would too. My dad would, you know, make the announcement. We're all going to confession this Saturday and we'd run out to the van and we were terrified. (laughs) What would happen if we didn't? Like none of us ever (laughs) tested. Um, (laughs) We never tested that, but um, we would, we would go. and, And I remember being terrified and doing all these kinds of things to try to like, miss out, you know, like, oh, father ran out of time. He has the same ass. Too bad. Right. Maybe next right. time. You know, I was terrified of it. And, and I don't know, I think some of it, I just had this idea that the priest was going to yell at me or something for my sins, which never priest, no priest has ever done. So I don't know even why I had this I- idea. And I just want to say <laughs> for anyone listening, if you ever look at confession the way it's done in TV and movies, and that's what's holding you back from going, put that out of your mind because it is never like that. I've never no. had a confession that said, oh, that reminds me of this TV show or that movie. It's so far. <laughs> right. And thank um, God it's not like the movies. Right? That's the worst it, ever. Yes, they, they make it look so scary. They make it look like people can come into the priest eyed and, you know, they're not a priest, but they're here and, you know, like the person you're trying to get away from or whatever. Right. Um, It's just so much ridiculousness, but I have found so much grace and healing in the sacrament. I remember hearing that John Paul II, St. John Paul II would go to confession once a week. And I just remember being floored and just, and being like, oh my goodness, this is the Pope. He is a very holy man. What could he possibly have to confess once a week? And I was convicted and I was like, okay, I know I'm scared of it, but I'm going to try and I'm going to start doing this because if he's going once a week, I should probably be going once a day. So right. <laughs> I started going once a week. And and at first I would confession hop, <laughs> you know, like go to a different church every week. Oh, um, yeah. You don't want to get you don't want to get into a groove where somebody might. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been there yes. before. So after doing this for a while and talking to a priest friend who said, <laughs> and just really encouraged me, no, find a regular confessor. And I was like, you're crazy. <laughs> I did. I, I said, okay, I'm going to go to the same priest every week. And I started experiencing so much healing that from, ev- from things that I, I had experienced in my childhood and, and then the, and the trauma when I was 14 and all these things they started, I started experiencing so much healing. I couldn't, I can't even explain it. Like, it's just amazing to look and see the grace that's available in the sacrament that I'm so terrified of. And I know many other people are too. And now I'm like, it's such a sacrament of love. 
And that's never, people don't talk about that very often. And that's something I really want to share is it's not, it's a sacrament of healing of grace, but it's a sacrament of love. So with it being a sacrament of love, Mm -hmm. do you, can you say that you love the man who almost raped and killed you? No. But you forgive him. But I forgive him. And... And and, and I then, forgive the young woman who shot me. And we did find out that it was gang initiation. And we went to trial. And the tr- entire trial process lasted three years, which was, I mean, talk about a journey. It w- I was in such a, oh, that was hard. Like talk about impatience and just wanting to get over it. I would send out emails once a week to everyone who was praying for me. We had like, um, kind of like a prayer chain list. And I would send out emails once a week begging everyone to pray that she would say that she was guilty so I wouldn't have to testify. Because I, I knew if, she, if I needed to testify, I was going to testify. There was never a question about that. But I didn't want to testify. I was terrified. So I begged everyone, please, like, please have her, you know, say that she's guilty and, and she takes responsibility and that God will move in her heart. And she didn't. And she wouldn't. And so we did go to trial and I testified and it was very hard to do, but so it I mean, was the right I mean, thing to do. Not not that we need to go into all of this um, in the interest mm-hmm. of time here, but I mean, did she just, just, did she just refuse to admit it? I mean, I don't know exactly how oh, all, yeah. the, all those, I mean, did she just say it wasn't me? <laughs> what did she? Yes. She, really? Well, she did. I mean, well, of course in court, which is very different than TV and movies too, by the way, very, very different. You do, the defendant does say, you know, like they say, guilt, like you have to say, are you guilty or not guilty? Like what? And I don't, I wasn't there for that part, but she said not guilty. So then, okay, we have to prove her guilt. When it was the sentencing hearing, I did stand up and say, I spoke to the judge. I encouraged her to sentence her for a very long time. And, and I did turn to her and I said, I forgive you and I pray for you every single day that you may come to know the incredible love, mercy, and forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. And she sat there with her arms crossed and then her response was, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And, you know, it was heartbreaking, but it was, I wasn't shocked by it. I mean, there were other issues throughout the trial. We don't have time to talk about, but where like people, you know, a friend of hers, I think, tried to approach me or, and they're not allowed to. You cannot do that. And so it was clear throughout the process that, and she, the attorney told me that she had told detectives a lot of different stories and they were always different. They were significantly different stories that she was trying to rob me, but then I wrestled her for the gun and it went off while we were wrestling. And I mean, just ridiculous things. But then her other stories were that she wasn't even there. So, and it was her cousin who looks exactly like her. And she was in the car at first, but then she got out of the car blocks before. And then, and it was her cousin who did it. And then she ran and she came to her cousin and took the gun from her cousin while we were standing there. And that's why I recognized her, you know, um, Mm. her stories were just so different, so ridiculous that, yeah, I mean, it was clear that she was lying and, so what did because, she end up going to jail? What was the verdict? I mean, how yes. was she sentenced? Yeah. So she was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. Wow. Yeah. So just in case life wasn't enough, an extra. 30. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So, yeah. And I mean, at have that point, you had she was any still, type of interaction with her since? 
I haven't, you know, I've, pr- I have prayed about it. Everyone's always saying like John Paul too. And he came, he went to visit, you know, the man who shot him and I'm like, yeah. But yeah, but um, like you said before, different- I mean, that doesn't mean you have to like go up and start up a friendship with her and be like, Hey, let's just become best friends. Even though you exactly. shot me. Right. Yes, exactly. And that's something, you know, I forgive her. And sometimes I have to choose to forgive her every single day. And and renew that because, you know, when I have a bad day and my body hurts, I have to say, okay, I'm going to choose forgiveness. And when I don't, thank God we have confession. I get, you know, it just amazes me. All these things that you've been through, the which, I mean, you wouldn't imagine going through one and then, I know you've heard this probably a million times, but then two, you know, mm-hmm. um, I mean, so... I guess I, I kind of want to end on this note and I want to know your thoughts on this. Like after going through so much suffering, I mean, legit suffering Yeah. and look, I am at fault at this and I don't know if you listening feel the same way, but I mean, I catch myself complaining over stupid crap all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's raining and I have to get out of my car and, and my hair's going to get wet. Oh, uh, whatever it might be. Oh, this, this just happened and I'm frustrated. I mean, we don't suffer very well in general. Um, mm-hmm. as a culture and, and suffering is also seen as something that, that that's bad. But you experience some very serious, real suffering, physical, mental, psychological, even spiritual. Mm-hmm. How are you the person you are today through that? Like, how have you used suffering to actually make you stronger? And I know, of course, I know, I know you'll say it, but it's always with God and through God and his grace. But mm-hmm. how did you do that? I mean, how did you get to that place where now You are a voice for survivors. I mean, you go around the world and you speak and you encourage people to forgive those in in their lives that have hurt them Mm -hmm. and for for them to forgive themselves. And you preach mercy and forgiveness and you preach a love of the Blessed Mother. I mean, you can't possibly be that strong of a woman and a survivor without having have dealt with some serious suffering. So how did Mm -hmm. you how did that play out in your life? How did you use all this suffering to actually become somebody who's now a voice for those who have suffered as well? Well, I think there's a lot of different components in that. One is a lot of people are praying for me. And so it's the power of the power of prayer. And that's something I talk a lot about as well, that even if it's a simple prayer, even if all you have time is for one Hail Mary or God bless that person, it can change lives. And, and not only has it changed my life in a physically and emotional way, but I, so every time I speak, I have a group of people that I have named a group of intercessors that I named Mantle of Roses Intercessors, named after Our Lady of Guadalupe and St. Teresa Lisieux. And I've, I've dedicated my apostolate to both of them. So every time I speak, they pray. And whether it's, you know, 10 people or, you know, 10,000, like I've got, I'm covered in prayer. And that I think is one of the most important things because I can't do it without them. So people praying, that's a huge thing. You can change lives for someone that you've never even met just by offering a prayer. And even like when you're complaining, and I I still do, like to this day, I catch myself complaining over stupid things. You know, a few years after I was shot, I would when people, family members, and of course, I always said it in love for the most part. <laughs> if, if one of my family members would complain and I'd sit there and I'd listen, you know, but sometimes depending on what it was, I would say, well, it could be worse. You could be shot. <laughs> right. I um, mean, that's, that's definitely something, you know, I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it would be great. It'd be great to always have you around me. 
throughout going throughout <laughs> my day. And I'm like, well, I mean, somebody could have just shot me. Um, right. So there's that. But I have to say that to myself. I mean, it's been eight years. And there are times when I complain over the stupidest things in the world. And, and I, so I have to remind myself, like, well, you know, you've been shot. You've been through worse. You can get through this. Like, it's not the end of the world that, you know, your husband didn't put the bowl in the same place that you always do <laughs> after he washed it. It's no big deal. Like, move Marriage. on. Okay. Yeah. And I just. It's so it's ridiculous. Like, you know, I still get caught up on little stuff. I think that's just our human nature, unfortunately, that we're all going to live through. But I think it's learning how to deal with that. So learning how to offer that up and say, okay. And that kind of comes to one of my other points that it really is training. So, I mean, I grew up trained to do this. And first of all, that might sound crazy to some people. Let me explain. My parents were activists in the 70s. So, and I know a lot of people were activists in the seventies. That was the thing, but they were legit activists in the seventies and they didn't, they weren't practicing their faith when they first got married, but after they had kids and thanks to a friend of theirs, who's very good, like to this day, they're very close. They reached out and they started catechizing my parents and my parents just fell in love with the faith that they had been raised in, but just weren't catechized well in. And so it just became my dad's mission to catechize his kids. And my dad's, he's not a professor, but he should have been. Like, he really missed his calling. So after dinner, we would always eat dinner together as a family. And he would spend during dinner and then after dinner catechizing us. And that meant, like, literally going through apologetics. And sometimes that would mean reading fables and then discussing how that fable, like, and talking about morality and, and how we can apply that to our day. And what is that meaning of that story and breaking it down. And then we'd also read scripture readings for the day and, and then talk about them. And we would read them out loud. And my parents did a lot of speaking as activists as well. So he, he would train us to speak and to address people on a public level. And, and we would go and see him speak at rallies when we were younger. So he really trained us. And, and so, and with that training, he always taught us, like when you see a need, don't just complain about it, be a part of the solution, go and fill it. He especially would encourage that with church issues. So when you're at a church and you see something that might need some help or whatever, you offer your services. So when I was in my twenties, my sister and I, we were at our parish we had a different, a new priest. And I noticed that the confirmation class was being run by the deacon who was running everything else as well as the youth group. And this man was, and he just didn't have time. He didn't, you know, he was overworked and the confirmation class was suffering. And, and I knew that because I sponsored a student. So I had gone and I saw, and I was like, Ooh, so I told this to my sister and she was like, well, this is an issue. And if we're going to say something, we have to be ready to be a part of it. So we went to him and he said, Hey, we see that the confirmation class needs help. We're willing to offer our services. We're willing to help. And he said, all right, it's all yours. I trust you guys. Do whatever you want. You're teaching the confirmation class. So we taught it for a couple of years. That's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful. Yeah. So it's the way we were trained, some of it. So I feel like in that sense, I can't take credit because, yeah, I was taught like, you know, you see a need, you experience, and also to use your, your life experiences. So I saw... and. One of the biggest things I worked on college campuses for a while, for 10 years, and I remember walking around and feeling like that little boy 
from the sixth sense where he says, I see dead people. Yeah. I felt like him, but saying, looking in the eyes of these people walking by me and saying, I see broken people. I see people who are so hurt. And because I had experienced healing, I wanted that for every single other person that I, that I was coming across. And so that really encouraged me to say, okay, I'm going to take this, something that was meant for death, and I'm going to use it with God's grace and with his mercy to help other people. And that's what really promotes me. And let me tell you, like, there are so many times I want to quit. <laughs> it can be hard. It can be exhausting. Sometimes going through the booking process can be a pain. But I just, in the end, what promotes me is the women that I meet and men too, but a lot of women who are so hurt, who come up to me afterwards and say, I was attacked or I was raped or I was molested or I was abused. And I haven't told anyone in 30 years and you're the first person. And now I'm going to go and I'm going to seek healing and, and I'm, I'm going to go to Amen. therapy. I'm going to look, you know, Amen. that's what makes it worth it. And for me, even if that one person, if only one person came away doing that, it would be worth it for me. Amen. But, Praise and I God. don't, I don't take that lightly. So where, where can people find you on social media? I mean, your, your website, why, why, mm -hmm. why don't you give us all the places where we can find you and give them more information, especially if you want to bring in Rosario into your, 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 your parish, your school, your function, where can they go? Yeah, I'm Rosario Rodriguez. That's the English way. Dot org or Rosario Rodriguez. Dot org. I wish I could say it that um, way, but I I can't. My English tongue doesn't right. do it. My I can't speak Polish, and my husband's Polish, and my <laughs> my tongue will not go anywhere near those Polish words. My husband's Korean, so I I understand just the different language. Like I'm with my uh, mother in law, and I'm like I I can't even I I, I try, but I. I yeah. can't do it. My tongue doesn't <laughs> want to move that way. Yeah. So, and then uh, Instagram and Twitter, I'm Rosario9MM. I was shot by a nine millimeter bullet. So Rosario9MM. Wow. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. All right. And I, the bullet is in my left clavicle. So I carry it with me and it is a reminder. Um, I always have that reminder. So it's still there. The bullet that was, not, was not removed. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, so, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then I have a Facebook page, but I think you can find that on my website and through Twitter and Instagram and all that. Yeah, jazz. it looks like on your web website, you've got all of the different um, little Twitter and Facebook yeah. and Pinterest and all the places where you can email. It's great. I'm on your website right now. You have your bio, your booking, you have endorsements from tons of awesome people that I know so well that love you. And just, it's great. Love to see that. All the, the <laughs> media links, you can see actual interviews, you can see Rosario uh, speaking right there. It's fantastic. Truly, I have sat and listened to this conversation here between us and, of course, mm -hmm. hundreds, thousands of others here who will hear it on the podcast. But there's so many moments where you were talking and I was just in tears. And I was in tears, not because of, I mean, granted, it was terrible. And I was actually in shock and some of the things that you were explaining, but I was just mm -hmm. moved by, clearly God's hand in your life to have you here with us. And I'm just, I don't know why I'm getting choked up, but I'm just so grateful and thankful that you decided to use your suffering and help redeem suffering in us too, by listening to your story that we can ask the Lord for healing in our lives. And maybe, maybe you, you listening, maybe you, maybe you need to forgive yourself. Maybe there's something mm -hmm. in your life that regardless of abuse or violence, but maybe there's just something you're holding on to, sins that you've committed that have just 
made mm-hmm. you feel obviously less than, and you just need to forgive yourself. And I'm telling you, uh, what a greater time than today. But right now, if you hear the Lord of God, um, harden not your hearts. So, but you've given us such hope and healing for ourselves and then offering that forgiveness to others and just letting it go, you know, mm-hmm. just offering those people to God, giving well, you them know, mercy. One thing I've experienced is sometimes the hardest people to forget are the people that you're closest to and the people that are called to love you the most. And a lot of times we put pressure on them to love us perfectly as only God can love us. And that's something I experienced in therapy that I realized that's not really fair of us. And sometimes we have to forgive ourselves for that and forgive them for the things they say or the things they don't say, the things they do and the things they don't do. And many times we even have to forgive our perception of who God is. So many times it's, it's flawed because a lot of times we look at God as how we look at our, our earthly father and maybe he's not perfect. Well, he's definitely not perfect because no one's perfect. But maybe he wasn't there. Maybe he's, you know, harsh. Maybe he's demanding. Maybe so many things. Or maybe he wasn't there for you. All these things, you know, or maybe it was a, a grandfather or someone, whoever, or something that you've heard from someone else, or the church, maybe, you know, a priest that so you think God's like that. God is all loving and he's all good. He wants so much good for you. And that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to give you everything you want when you want it as a good parent. But I just want you to know, like, allow yourself to experience healing from that perception and be healed and to know God as he truly is all good and all loving, because it will open up your heart and it will, it'll be amazing and a true gift to yourself. And every person deserves that. Amen. Amen. I Pope Francis says that just a little bit of mercy makes the world less cold and more just. Mm-hmm. So on that note, um, I love, and I love the, the, the tidbits you gave us, the things that, that worked for you of praying for others and offering it up and knowing your faith. And then if you see a need, fill a need. I mean, what four great points to remember in terms of how we can also just use suffering in our lives and actually paying it forward by those four ways of praying and offering and knowing our faith and also filling a need. That's so fantastic. You, you, without a doubt, I mean, you, you, you don't disappoint in your sharing of oh, your thanks. faith and your love. I mean, thank you for being you. My pleasure. Thank you for oh. just being you. Thank you for being here. I just, Rosario, I love you. You're just so wonderful oh, and so kind. And I'm just so honored that you're my sister in Christ. And I don't know why you're making me cry right now, but you are. You're just, <laughs> it's just such an awesome, it's an honor to speak with you. And thank you so much for sharing your heart and sharing your past as difficult as I'm sure sometimes it still can be at some moments to share mm-hmm. that. You know but, what? God's given me a grace to be able to share. So it's not difficult. It praise really, be to God. Yeah. Praise be to God for that. I definitely understand some parts of that. So, all right. Well, listen, I just, you embody so much of our beautiful St. Mother Teresa. So on that note, remember, remember, do something beautiful. Podcast listeners that whatever you do today, do it to love and serve the Lord. Do it something beautiful for the Lord because it is right and it is just. Thank you so much for listening. You're listening here to season three of the Do Something Beautiful podcast, and we can't wait to see you next time.